Let's pray now that the Spirit of God would illumine our hearts and understanding of His Word today. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we, we come before You mindful knowing that apart from Your grace and Your goodness in Jesus Christ and by the power of Your Spirit, we would not understand the things of Your Word. And so we ask now that Your Spirit would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to learn from You and what your word has to teach us today about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may you be brought praise and glory through the preaching and hearing of your word today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> our scripture text comes to us from Psalm 2 this morning, so give ear now to the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May the Lord bless his word to us today. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you know, we live uh, in a world that is uh, full of opposition uh, to the Lord and his kingdom. And to us, his people, and many of us and many people that we know may face that in various ways in our, our very homes at, in some cases, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, uh, even out and about. Uh, we, see it, we see all kinds of things happening in our culture, in the world uh, that are uh, concerning to us. Uh, and uh, often we may see or know of people who may speak out against uh, certain things going on and then receive uh, great consternation from our culture or if you open up your mouth just to simply share the good news of Jesus Christ that there's forgiveness of sins for sinners out in the world uh, you uh, likely have experienced some sort of scorn and scoffing and shame uh, and it's very easy for us in our pilgrim lives as we are making our way to heaven living in this present evil age it's very easy for us to get discouraged especially as we feel uh, the weights and difficulties of our own lives, let alone the weights and difficulties that we see and hear about in the world around us. Uh, and so sometimes we can forget the overall bigger picture of what is happening in history and the purpose of history and where it is all heading toward. And so it is good for us to lift our eyes to heaven and to allow our heads to be lifted above the clouds and to be refreshed uh, with a reminder from God's word. Uh, that, uh, that there is a big picture indeed for us to grasp about our God and our King in heaven. And that is Psalm 2. 
in many ways. And Psalm 2, in many ways, corrects our and reorients our thinking and living in this world. And we need that at times. We need to be invaded uh, by the Word of God to remind us of things bigger than ourselves and outside of ourselves, lest we despair and be discouraged in our pilgrim life. And so Psalm 2 comes to us today. And as you know, Psalm 2 comes after what? Psalm 1, right? So Captain Obvious there, but uh, it's helpful for some context. As Psalm 1 is uh, the first psalm in the Psalter, and it's really about the most important individual matter in this life, as commentators point out, that you know who you belong to and to, and to where you belong, the church that is in the congregation of the righteous. And so here now we have Psalm 2 following in on the coattails of Psalm 1, and that adds that you must also know uh, where the history of the world is heading. So we've got to keep in mind the overall 30,000-foot view, bird's-eye view, of where history is going and that the world has been given and promised to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Yahweh's anointed one. And so we want to think about these things this morning uh, by considering four points. So first, uh, the world that rages, in verses 1 through 3. The throne that rules, in verses 4 through 6. And third, the decree that determines, in verses 7 through 9. And uh, fourthly, the gospel that calls, in verses 10 through 12. So the world that rages, the throne that rules, the decree that determines, the gospel that calls. And in order to give credit where credit is due, I've adapted this particular outline from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on this psalm. And as we think about these things, loved ones, May we find great comfort in knowing uh, that our God holds this raging world uh, in His omnipotent hand and that He is sovereignly guiding it perfectly to its appointed end. And so in the first place, let's consider the world that rages. Look with me uh, at verses 1 through 3 again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the psalmist here wastes no time in declaring the theme of what he's writing about here. Uh, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? So he's astonished here that the rulers of the earth would even try to conspire and counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed king. Um, yet, he's not surprised, uh, nor is he worried, but he knows that the nations, along with their kings and their rulers, they rage and they plot in vain. And so, rage here in this psalm, it, it carries the sense of foaming up like salt water in the ocean after a wave crashes. And so, Young people and kids, when you go to the ocean and you see the waves crest and break in the salt water, you see that foam agitated and stirring up. Well, that's what uh, this sense of rage here uh, carries. The water foams up and it's agitated. That's really what the nations are like. They're chaotically stirred up to rebellion against the Lord and His King because they don't want to acknowledge that there is someone with greater authority over them. And pagan kings in the ancient Near East 
considered themselves to be divine rulers. And the scriptures here in Psalm 2 describes them ultimately as gathering all together in order to overthrow God himself. That's what's, that's what's being described here in Psalm 2. And as you remember, that's what Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel was all about, wasn't it? The sinful city of man rising up in rebellion against its creator, attempting to unseat him from his throne so that they themselves could seize all of his glory and indeed reign in his place, replace him. And we should never think that any person or nation on the earth is innocent in this regard, the United States included. We're, we're not a, a special nation separate from the rest. And so be wise, loved ones. Don't be fooled. So Psalm 2 here gives us a healthy reminder that redemption, that salvation cannot come from this world, cannot come from the kingdoms of this world, because ultimately they are truly in opposition to the Lord and his redemptive kingdom and plan and purposes. So the Lord's anointed here, in the first sense, is, earthly, is the earthly Davidic king of theocratic Israel. And we read, uh, for instance, of Samuel anointing David in 1 uh, Samuel 16, verse 13. And then later in coronation ceremonies in Israel, uh, the, basically the, uh, the new king would swear his allegiance to the law of God when a copy of it was read and when it was presented to him, and then he'd be anointed himself as well. We can read that in 1 Kings 1 and 2 Kings 11. And, and so the anointed one of Psalm 2 here is really any anointed king, historically, in, in the context of the ancient Near East and the time of, of the theocratic kingdom of Israel, that, that really the anointed one of Psalm 2 is any anointed king who was seated on the throne of David in Israel. Uh, and when the pagan kings and nations gathered against Israel and her anointed king, they were ultimately counseling and conspiring together against Yahweh himself because the king of Israel was Yahweh's anointed one, his earthly representative. But the Lord's anointed, there in verse 2 of Psalm 2, it has a prophetic messianic dimension as well. Uh, and the New Testament leaves us with no doubt about that whatsoever. Right? And in fact, this psalm is one of the most quoted parts of the Bible in the New Testament in relation to Messiah and Jesus Christ. And listen to how the early church uh, uh, viewed this verse in Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 29. And we get a little bit of divine commentary from the Word of God on Psalm 2. Uh, it says there in Acts 4 that after the Jewish leaders, they arrested and warned the apostles not to preach Christ. They had healed a man uh, and preached Christ, and then they told them not to preach Christ anymore. And, and when they had heard it, the word of God says, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan 
had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So you see there, even in this prayer, in the book of Acts by the early church, they recognize that Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and Israel itself gathered together against the Lord's anointed, God's holy servant, Jesus, and they crucified him. And so they saw in Psalm 2 here a foretelling of the rage of the world against Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And so Psalm 2 really became an encouragement to the people of God because it provided them with a big picture, provided them with a big picture that their persecution from the world was part and parcel of the nations raging against Christ himself. And they found comfort. They found comfort in uh, the knowledge that the world's effort to snuff out the gospel message was in vain because they believed the word of God there. Uh, And so the big picture for us today is the same loved ones. We must understand that the world is in opposition to God. They hate him and his Messiah and Messiah's people. In fact, this is what Jesus taught us as well in John 15, verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So we can take heart knowing that when we suffer for Christ's name, we're sharing in the sufferings of our Lord who has gone before us. And like the apostles in the book of Acts, rejoice even to know that we are partaking in the sufferings of Jesus and that there is a royal dignity in the association of being persecuted for the name of Jesus and hated for his sake, knowing that he was hated first and that nothing, though, can... Uh, Though the world vents its rage against us, nothing can take away uh, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ and our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins and the resurrection found only in Him. And so we can take courage and take heart knowing that when we suffer for Christ's name, we're we're sharing in the suffering of our Lord who has gone before us. And so when your family smirks at you for not attending their birthday party on the Lord's Day because it conflicts with the worship times of the worship services... Or when you tell a friend or co-worker or a classmate that they need their sins forgiven and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to to receive the forgiveness of their sins, and uh, you may uh, experience uh, that they despise you for it. And it may even ruin your relationship with them. Uh, But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, loved ones. Expect it. The world hates you because it hates God and hates his anointed one. And if one day we find ourselves threatened with imprisonment by the authorities in this common kingdom for sharing the gospel, we should not be surprised. And it, it can happen here, loved ones. It can happen here even in the United States. And so we should be wise. So when we're threatened with imprisonment, uh, we shouldn't be surprised. So the world opposes Christ, therefore it will oppose us too. That's part of the big picture that we're to get from Psalm 2. And we're fortified in the midst of this persecuting evil age by the knowledge that though the world may vent its worst against Christ and against his church, its efforts are vain and in vain because the one we serve 
loved ones cannot be overthrown. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the throne that rules. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so in verse 3, we heard the vain threats of the raging world against God. And here in verse 4, we hear his response. The one sitting on the throne in heaven, Adonai, the, the ruler of all, mocks and laughs at them. God is unimpressed by the foaming nations. Their threats, their rulers, their armies, their nuclear bombs, their United Nations, all of it and their rebellion are cause for the Almighty's laughter. They are nothing before Him. Nothing. Psalm 37 echoes some of this in verse 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. And Psalm 2, verse 5 says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This isn't a picture of a warm, fuzzy God here, is it? I mean, this really flies in the, the face of flim-flam sentimental views of God only being loving to the exclusion of His wrath. That, that view doesn't really quite cut the mustard here, according to Psalm 2. No, it doesn't. The holy God of the universe is not a rad dad. He's the holy creator. He's the holy creator, and He mocks the futility of this world's rebellion. He derides the wicked with wrath and terror. He speaks against them with wrath and terror. He speaks against the rebellious world. And the nations declare in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet Adonai responds with holy derisive laughter and then thunderously roars in his terrifying majesty and wrath, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So anyone who stands in opposition to this holy God and his holy king upon their death, or when Christ returns, will not discover that love wins. They'll only discover here that God's justice wins out in the end. And they will shrink in terror before him as they receive the earned wages for their sins. And so this sinful, rebellious world needs to hear these things, and they need to hear that there is also a way of escape. A way of escape is there to escape the coming wrath of God. They desperately need to hear that God himself has provided King Jesus on his holy hill. And that it's only through this King Jesus, only through him, trusting in him and his shed blood, and trusting in his righteous life and his death and his resurrection, it's only through faith in him that sinners will receive mercy. 
and love from God instead of justice and wrath. This is the gospel that the world desperately needs to hear. But there's a bit of a kicker here in verse 6, as one commentator points out here. There's a, there's a kind of weakness revealed in the face of this united human front against the Lord and his anointed king. Yahweh has installed his king on the holy hill of Zion. I want to focus on Zion for a moment here. Uh, ultimately, he's speaking uh, in its context here of his covenantal kings in, in Israel, David and his line of kings that eventually, though, culminates in Christ himself. But let's think a moment here where the Lord, where Yahweh begins. The first mention of Zion is in, script, in Scripture is in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6 through 10. I won't read it now, but uh, according to one commentator, uh, this Zion was a puny 11 acres of real estate on the southeastern ridge of Jerusalem. This is where God set his holy king on Zion. This little puny hill, just a few acres compared to the whole world that rages against him. God plants his kingdom there. Let that sink in for a moment where the Lord begins. Yahweh begins his visible kingship and kingdom there on a tiny hill in Jerusalem, but it will eventually become a great mountain that shall fill the whole earth indeed, as Daniel 2.35 proclaims to us. God plants his kingdom in apparent weakness on a little weak hill in Zion, but because God is the one who plants it, because God is the one who plants it, it will prove undefeatable. It shall never be destroyed, and it shall consume all these raging kingdoms at the last day, and it shall stand forever. This is the Lord's kingdom. It shall stand forever, as Daniel 2 says. Even God's so-called weakness is stronger than man. God's visible kingdom, his church, loved ones, it may look weak, it may look flimsy. You may feel weak as a church. You may feel flimsy and like it's a house of cards, it seems, that it can come down at any moment. Sometimes life in the church feels that way. Sometimes the leaders of the church feel that way. We may feel that way, that it's weak and flimsy. But God himself has planted it. God himself has planted it. And the nations, the raging nations, cannot extinguish it. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. So our Lord and our King, Jesus Christ, in his first coming, he came in apparent weakness as a man, didn't he? Uh, in our frail flesh. And he inaugurated the, the coming of his kingdom through suffering and weakness and through persecution of this world that culminated in his bloody crucifixion on the cross for our sins. And then he died. Yet it was through this weakness, that it was through this weakness that God chose to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, and even death itself. It was through this weakness that the kingdom, that the gates of the kingdom of God have been flung open to sinners. Sinners who repent and trust in the king that he has set on his holy hill, Zion. And so what a fascinating combination here, weakness 
and invincibility. And 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, For Christ was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. And so does his kingdom. And so do we in him, loved ones, no matter what we face in this world. And so as the world rages and as the trials and sufferings of this age press against you, lift your eyes to the throne that truly rules over all things. For when you are weak in Christ, then you shall be strong, as the scriptures declare. His strength is made perfect through weakness. And his weakness is stronger than the world and the rage of the devil. So that's the picture, loved ones, that we are to fix our hearts and minds on and to grasp. God has set King Jesus on his holy hill. And he reigns over all opposition. So look only to him, loved ones. Trust only in him in the midst of this pilgrim journey that you are making uh, toward heaven. Well, the third thing that we want to grasp from Psalm 2 uh, is the decree that determines in verses 7 through 9. Look with me there. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so interestingly, here a different person speaks. The anointed king now actually tells what Yahweh declared and decreed. Uh, as uh, one commentator points out, we see that there are really three highlights in this decree about Messiah's reign. The first is that his reign is legit. It's legitimate. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the Lord, upon installing his anointed king, calls him his son. So the king's rule is rightful. The king's rule is legitimate. And in the New Testament... This verse is quoted by the apostles in relation to Christ's resurrection. Uh, listen to Acts chapter 13, verse 30 through 39. But God raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. So the resurrection of Christ was the clearest proof that Christ is indeed God's son, the legitimate king with a legitimate rule and reign. And we also see the scope, secondly, of Messiah's rule, the, the breadth and width of his rule. In verse 8, the nations and the ends of the earth are his to possess. They belong to him. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the anointed king here shares, this is what Yahweh has said to me as his king. The nations are mine to possess. So the king's rule will be international, a worldwide kingdom it will be, 
at the last day. And then thirdly, we also see the force of Messiah's rule, the strength of Messiah's rule in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, in the ancient Near East, it was common for kings to inscribe their names on pottery along with curses against their enemies and then smash the jars to pieces with their feet. And so it was really a declarative symbol of their inevitable rule over foreign lands. And so this wasn't a practice that was uh, practiced in uh, the land of Israel, but anyone who read this verse, uh, especially the surrounding kings in opposition to Israel at the time, would understand what this meant. And so in Revelation 12 and Revelation 19, we read of Christ being declared the one who will rule all the nations of the world with his rod of iron. And at the last day he will return and he will impose his rule by force. Now uh, is the time that his kingdom has begun to be manifested through the apparent weakness of the preached gospel and administrated sacraments in his visible church, which appears foolish in the eyes of the world. But on the last day, on the last day, he will fully manifest his kingdom by force. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of mercy. But on the last day, it's the day of force and rule and reign, imposition. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ won't come because the world welcomes his reign and evolves into the kingdom of God as uh, so post-millennialists tend to believe. No, it is going to fully come on the last day when Christ imposes his reign by force on a rebellious world in opposition to him. And so here's the picture that this decree gives us. The appointed king in verse 7 and his worldwide reign in verse 8 will be established in overwhelming force, verse 9, on the last day. That's the decree that is controlling all of history. That's what everything is heading toward, loved ones. So these verses are God's will for King Jesus. This is the decree of God that has determined what will take place and, uh, and it will prevail. This is what the history of the world is all about. And so, loved ones, may the, the certainty of this decree shake up your view of the world. May it shake up your view of life in this world. May it influence the way you view politics. May it influence the way you view government. May it influence the way you view the conditions of this world and your place in the world. We may not know what to make of the chaos of the world at times. Everything that goes on in our country and neighboring countries and around the world, it seems so confusing and so... Uh, crazy at times even to us. We may not understand it at times. But one thing that we know is absolutely certain overall, that history is headed to its appointed end, no matter what. It's the sovereign decree loved ones, of the Lord Almighty that controls and shapes everything. 
It's the knowledge of this decree that holds us, God's people, together during this chaotic present evil age. And it's especially the knowledge of knowing that this God who has decreed this is for us and not against us for the sake of Christ. And that our end is not the end of the wicked, but the end of the righteous, the righteous one, Jesus, in heaven by his merits. And everything else that's happening in this world is being brought to its appointed end by the sovereign of all. And we're in him, safe. And so it's in the knowledge of this decree that God holds us, God's people, together during this present evil age uh, that gives us strength and fortifies us to persevere. And so though this world may rage against our Lord and his Christ and even against us, we can take comfort not only in the knowledge of God's decree that Christ shall reign as King of Kings on the last day, but we can also take comfort knowing that we will one day reign with him. We will reign with him in glory, as Revelation 2, 25 and 27 declares. So the decree of Psalm 2 is breathtaking. It is breathtaking. No matter what in the end, Christ wins. We don't know how it's all going to happen. And we may not understand it along the way, but in the end, Christ wins. He will come and raise the dead, and us as well. And we will be raised to new life. And we will rule and reign with the King of kings and Lord of lords in glory. Uh, and uh, so let the world vent its worst against us and his church and against Christ. And so though we're despised now, though we may suffer now, there's great glory that is coming later, right? Uh, so that's part of the overall picture that we're to grab and understand from Psalm 2. And so may knowing the decree that has determined the end of all things strengthen us, loved ones, to faithfully persevere through anything and everything that the world uh, throws at us. So we have a glorious, guaranteed inheritance and a gracious reward awaiting us. So don't turn back, loved ones. Keep going. Keep going. Looking to Jesus. And finally, the last thing for us to grab with the overall big picture in Psalm 2 is the gospel that calls in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So now the psalmist speaks himself on behalf of the Lord. Uh, and we see in these words the patience and benevolence of God toward a rebellious world. Yes, he is opposed to the world, has wrath against this mutinous rebellion that has been taking place, but yet here there is also patience and benevolence of God. The Lord gives the very same nations, kings, and, and rulers who rage against him the opportunity for mercy. They don't deserve it, but he provides it nonetheless in his mercy. Now, that's not a day coming after the return of Christ. Uh, that day of mercy is now, as I said earlier. But the rebels here are called to make really the only reasonable choice, right? Bend the knee or perish. 
God calls the world here. All the nations, Gentiles, Jews, everybody, to serve him, to worship him. And so the world is summoned to renounce themselves and trust in the Lord and his king, Jesus Christ. This is what calls out to the world. They are to kiss the sun. In other words, they're to pay homage to him. They're to bend the knee and kiss his scepter. That's the imagery that's going on. A king would have his scepter, and those in his presence, uh, he would extend the scepter, and if you kiss it, he will receive that homage, and he will have mercy. But if you do not, that scepter comes back, and the world and those in rebellion against him are judged in terrifying wrath, receiving the wages of their sins that they have earned. And so the gospel call is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, knowing that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself or appease God's wrath against us on our own, but to trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all his righteousness becomes yours, and all your sins are given to Jesus. He died on the cross for that. If you trust these things, that's true for you. By the grace of God, you've kissed the scepter. You've kissed the sun. You're spared from wrath. And so this rebellious world is called to repent and believe in Christ before it's too late. And for you who have trusted in Christ already, the good news is, is that on the last day, your justification that stands now will stand then too. You're not going to stand before God and be justified by your works suddenly. You will be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. It's His gracious work in you now and forever. You've kissed the Son by His grace now, and you by His grace will kiss the Son then. And so verse 12 gives the, the message that Christ's church must announce boldly and without fear or shame, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Loved ones, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in him. That's our message as a church to the world and to one another and to believe for ourselves. So as one commentator said, there's no refuge in this world from Christ and his coming kingdom. There is only refuge found in him. It's only in him. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And so in conclusion, loved ones, there you have it. That's the overall picture. The world that rages, the throne that rules, the decree that, term, that determines and the gospel that calls. The world belongs to Christ. That's where everything is heading, loved ones. So may we ever find our comfort uh, in this glorious big picture, and may we never take our eyes off it by God's grace. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for your goodness to us in Christ. Thank you that you have indeed set your King, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, upon your holy hill in Zion. And thank you, O God, that by your grace we have kissed the Son, that we know you and him and the Holy Spirit, all by your goodness and condescension to us in your Son. Father, we pray for the world. We pray for those whom we know that do not know you, those of our co-workers, our own family members, our classmates, those 
friends of ours out in the world. We, we pray for those who do not know you. We ask that you would convert them. Lord, even be pleased to open our mouths to share the gospel. God, may you even be pleased to open their hearts to receive the good news of Jesus Christ, even from the preaching of this very pulpit. And we long for and we look for your return, O oh God. Strengthen us as we face many hardships in the future, or maybe even facing now in persecution. Strengthen us to remember that this world belongs to our Lord, and that one day he will return to bring us to himself, and we will reign with him forever. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And let's stand and sing God's word back to him. And we'll sing the setting of Psalm 2. Why do, the heathen, why do heathen nations rage? Number 2A.
congregation hear the voice of your good shepherd send you out with his blessing and this uh, good word. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.